I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. If you or anyone that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com. There you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that is pathbackrecovery.com. And uh, coming to you just for, I, I think, what will be a quick podcast. Um, I've recorded quite a few lately, so I've got a lot in the can, as they say. Some good interviews with some people coming up. and uh, But I still want to do some of these, um, some of the content, some of the things I feel a little bit more passionate about. And I wanted to do one on some questions and answers. One of the biggest questions I get often is, why haven't I done a question and answer podcast? Because I often mention that I'm going to do a question and answer podcast. And quite frankly, it's I've just had so much material that I want to get through. So I'm still, I'm extremely grateful for the feedback, the emails that I get, and I've been collecting them for quite a while now. I try to get back to people when I can, but I put together some of the questions that I get asked the most. So I wanted to tackle those, and I've tried to not prepare as many notes as I would normally for a podcast, because I kind of want to speak off the off the cuff here a little bit when I answer these questions. And um, I'm not going to do an ad or anything like that for it. But of course, if you if you feel so inclined, um, head over to TonyOverbay.com and sign up for my mailing list, which I'm trying to do a little bit more with, or go follow me on Instagram at Virtual Couch or on Facebook at Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Okay, let's get to the questions and answers. Here's a good one. Um, and uh, I'm going to skip the parts because these uh, big time um, imposter syndrome in me uh, is just kicking in here because most people say really nice things before they get to the question. I don't know if they're just trying to butter me up before they ask the question, hoping that I will respond. But this one does say nice things about the podcast. But this person asks, and it's such a great question. I get I get one like this often. It says, um, they are trying to find a po- one of the, my podcasts that talks about how to start heartfelt discussions with your spouse. And they say that they know it kind of sounds dumb, but every statement that they try to think of to have a real, a real conversation, a real talk just sounds bad or like a selfish attack. And they say, I'm not even sure if I need to apologize for anything, um, but maybe this would be a good topic to cover. And this person is absolutely correct. And this is, if you've heard me, if you've heard some of the ones I do on couples communication, I love talking about EFT, Emotionally Focused Therapy by Dr. Sue Johnson. And the book Hold Me Tight is a good one. She also has a book called Love Sense, which is amazing. But in EFT, we're talking about if both people know what the rules are with EFT when somebody puts out an emotional bid, when they say, hey, here's what I'm thinking, here's how I'm feeling, then their partner's job is to respond with empathy, no fixing and judgment statements. And then once um, the person who puts out the emotional bid feels heard, then, uh, then you know, it feels good to feel heard and feels like you feel you're safe in that communication. And so then the partner that just uh, listened with empathy and now they're going to put out their truths. They're going to kind of share now that they have this new data. Matter of fact, okay, I'm going to go on a total tangent here. And this might seem a little bit, uh, I don't know, might seem a little bit, and it's not irreverent, but here's, here's a version of this I've been telling lately. I don't know where this one hit me. But a lot of times when people come into, let's just say that a husband has asked a wife to, while he's gone for, the, for a little while, you know, if there's one thing you can do, can you do this thing in the kitchen that I really need you to do? So husband goes and he's slaying the dragon. He comes home and then his wife is sitting on in the kitchen and she's writing down something on the, you know, on a piece of paper at the table. And he comes in and he's, he's livid. You know, I can't believe I've only asked you to do one thing. You didn't do that thing. And then she looks up at him. She stops and she just kind of just freezes. So 
not not a productive way to communicate. Here, here is um, kind of answering this question. Here's where I would like to go with this. This is the example I like to give. So instead, if husband comes in and he sees wife at table and she is writing things down and she says, and he says, hey, uh, what are you up to? And then she looks over at him and says, you know what? I uh, actually just was uh, visited by the ghost of, you know, some famous person in the past who um, has gone to the great beyond and they came back and they have they, they have the cure for some just incurable disease, you know, cancer, something like that. And so they just they just gave it to me and they basically told me um, they're just going to say it once. And I got one shot to write it down and then that will, you know, uh, cure this disease for all of mankind. Then husband's going to go, okay, uh, you keep at that. I'm going to be in the family room watching TV, right? But if he comes in, guns ablaze, and he's like, you know, I can't believe you aren't doing this thing that I asked you. And all of a sudden, she just looks at him blank face and says, oh, my gosh. You know, I just had this uh, this um, this ghost appear to me and give me the cure for this uh, incurable disease. And now it's completely gone, right? I mean, what's the husband going to do? My bad. Right. So I know it's a, it's not like a perfect example, but it's the seek first to understand before being understood example. Uh, even if there's something that you thought the other person should do or should know, go in and ask first. Hey, tell me about your day. Tell me what's going on, because you might find that there is a lot of things that have gone on and then you're going to have more empathy or compassion for your partner. Or at least that's my hope. So back to this person's uh, question, I call this and this is not um, something that you'll find a book about, but I, I kind of call it one man EFT. And what I mean by this is so when this person says, uh, how do you start heartfelt discussions with your spouse? I feel like typically when we go in and we want to have a conversation with our spouse, we're typically saying, hey, why don't you care about me anymore? Right. And and so if that is a complete shock or surprise, where did that come from? Now spouse is going to be in defense mode. And all of a sudden he's going to say, well, you don't care about me either. And now and we're off and unproductive communication ensues. So instead I feel like the way to address this, this way to start a heartfelt discussion, it's this concept, this one man EFT, I like to call it, is that person goes in and says, you know, spouse goes in and if they want to start this heartfelt confession, they might say, hey, um, you know, what do you remember about when we used to go on dates when we were first married? And, and now at some point, husband looks up and says, oh, man, I used to love that. We used to do this or this or or that sort of thing. And now or we might even say, oh, why do you ask? But even that's better than kind of putting him on his heels, putting him on defense mode. So the reason I call it one man EFT is you're in essence you're kind of starting with empathy. So if it's if it has something to do with, you know, um, hey, you know, what do you remember about uh, when we dated and, and the things we used to talk about or uh, going into him and saying, hey, do you remember when we used to talk on the phone for hours? What do you remember about that? And if, if husband is saying, ah, I used to love that we would sit there until, you know, I don't know, I'm trying to come up with some old phone analogy. Um, cordless phones, here we go, battery would die. And then we would have to, you know, we would hang up and then there was some laughing. And then if, if the thought, you know, then if a person who started the conversation says, you know, I really miss that. I really miss that connection with you. And I really miss being able to talk to you like that. Now, all of a sudden there's, you know, there we're feeling some empathy for each other and we're, we're talking about connection. We're talking about a time when things were good. And how do we get back to that? It's not the, why don't you ever call me anymore? Or why don't you talk to me anymore? Because that's where we get into defensive mode. So, so really how to start heartfelt discussions is you lead with empathy. And so when you lead with empathy, then person is now sharing their truth. You lead with empathy. You ask, you know, tell me about, or what do you remember? Or tell me about a time when, or, um, you know, now your, your spouse who you're, who you're leading down this 
communication path is going to start reminiscing fondly or, or talking about uh, um, just kind of sharing their truths. And then with that information, now you get to share yours as well. And now we have a heartfelt discussion. So I, I hope that that answers that question. Even if it's you feel like your partner didn't handle something well with parenting. And this is, you know, this is one that I get often too, where, you know, I'll have a couple in my office and maybe let's just say for this one, the wife says, um, you know, I really don't like the way he talks to our son. And then, you know, he's immediately going to say, well, I mean, it's not like you're, uh, you know, talking really nice to him either. And now all of a sudden now we, again, we're back to this unproductive communication. But if we say, Hey, I noticed on, on Monday after dinner that, uh, you know, that so-and-so seemed pretty upset. What, what was going on there? You know, and then if, then if husband can say, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I felt like I was having a great conversation with him. All of a sudden he snapped, you know, now we have more, you know, it feels like a safer place to communicate. Or if it was, uh, you know, now spouse gets to say, oh, I noticed that you had, you know, and uh, boy, all I, I just wanted to help. I wanted to see if, what, what could I do? And now we're into a productive communication. At that point now it can be, uh, now we're sharing thoughts or ideas or, or that sort of thing. So I feel like that's the maybe the way that we start heartfelt discussions as we lead with empathy. Okay, let me get to question number two. This one I actually have. Um, let's see. Let me find it. So there's a, a guest that I had on my podcast a while ago, and his name was Joshua Shea, and um, he has a, he has a book out that is. I think it's the addiction that no one talks about and it talks about, um, well, he's a, he's a pornography addiction expert. He's an author, he's an activist. And, um, according to his bio, he was an addict for 20 years and now five years into recovery, he is a public speaker on the topic of pornography addiction. And he's currently working on his second book and he has a website called recoveringpornaddict.com. And so, um, but Joshua wrote an article in recovery magazine and I thought it was really good. And uh, and maybe part of why I thought it was good is, hey, he interviewed me for it as well. So this was in Recovery Today magazine, issue 46, September 2018. And here's the topic. So the World Health Organization finally recognizes compulsive sexual behavior disorder. And I've had a lot of questions come in about that. What are my thoughts on it? Is it a big deal? Why should it matter? And so this designation is, um, it's in the... Um, it's in the, it's called the International Classification of Diseases, the ICD. And so the ICD now, a lot of people believe that this designation in the ICD will help legitimize um, sex addiction, pornography addiction, that sort of thing. Because there's still a lot of people that, that there's this debate over, is pornography addiction a thing or is sexual addiction a thing? And uh, so the World Health Organization um classifying it, again, it, it kind of legitimizes it. But uh, reading from his article, he said that um, the World Health Organization characterizes compulsive, compulsive sexual disorder as a persistent pattern of failure to control intense repetitive sexual impulses or urges resulting in repetitive sexual behavior. And so some people point to the fact that the word addiction doesn't actually appear anywhere in the ICD's description. And uh, but but, you know, that's not as much of a deal. I wanted to just read and boy, I realize now, um, let me quote myself in this article. 
But uh, just to answer some of the questions I get is, um, here's what Joshua said. Tony Overbay, LMFT and host of the Virtual Couch Podcast said, while an official compulsive sexual behavior disorder label is important to have, it's still only a label. And here's what I said. Um, I feel like for those of us that are on the front lines who are treating what our clients bring into session, meaning a compulsive sexual behavior that is causing them problems, be it a problem with the connection to a partner or objectifying men or women or an unhealthy view of sexuality that is negatively affecting their quality of life, the debate is unproductive. I'm just glad to see the attention brought to the issue, whether we call it sexual impulse disorder or sex or porn addiction. Um, whatever it is, if a client is struggling with connection or um, communication or it's causing them um, problems at work, in their home, that sort of thing, then I feel like it's something that we need to talk about. So we can label it. We don't have to label it. To me, quite frankly, it doesn't matter. If someone needs help, then we want to help them with that. Because I still go back to, uh, for the most part, I find that, um, you know, the sexual addictions, those sort of things, really, uh, they kind of spring from this this unmet need. And, uh, and so there's a, there's a person on my forum and I was so, I loved this quote. They, they shared a quote about this and they said sin uh, or addiction or bad habits or any of those things are not something that's a final and terrible condemnation of who we are, but rather they're symptoms or results of a deep or unmet need in our life that has caused a figurative void within us that we're desperately trying to fill, but don't know how. And that, that is the truth. I mean, so it's these, you know, a, a figurative void within us. So as we separate um, ourselves from addiction, each of us are better than our worst mistakes. We need to love others and ourselves well enough to not simply try and subtract the addiction from our lives, but rather focus on the deeper reason by we, but behind why we or somebody else would turn to addiction in the first place. And we need to work on adding something positive to fill that void that addiction has desperately been trying to fill. And this person went on to talk about, and I love this concept. He said, um, I found the biggest ways I've seen in change in my life have come from trying to start doing something rather than trying to stop doing something. I found that it's so much easier to add things into my life than try to subtract or remove bad habits. For example, it's hard to completely cut sugar out of your diet, but it's much easier to start eating an extra piece of fruit every day and then add some vegetables, more protein. And pretty soon you're so full from the healthy foods that you've added to your diet that the sugary snacks have all but disappeared on their own because you filled that void. There's that key word. You fill that void with a healthy choice and there's no longer room for the unhealthy practices. And I feel for the most part that sex addiction, pornography addiction, compulsive sexual behavior, those are sprung from this void. And for me, it's more about the what is that person not feeling connected to in their life? Are they feeling not connected to their partner? Are they feeling uh, not satisfied with their job? Do they feel like they're not a good enough parent? Do they feel like they're not in control of their health? Do they feel like they're struggling in their their with their church community? Um, but whatever leaves this kind of uneasy feeling, this uncomfortable feeling, or this void in their life, then that's where um, addiction springs. So, so back to the initial question, the World Health Organization recognizes Recognizing compulsive sexual behavior disorder is wonderful because it furthers the debate and it will legitimize it for some people. But for me, it's if this is something that you want to get rid of, uh, there is help. There is absolutely help. And that leads to kind of let me just do another um, question that often goes along with that, too. 
the question is, um, so someone had said, okay, listen to the podcast. I'm skipping all the good, uh, thank you for all the nice comments and stuff. But they say that uh, they expire and inspiring, want to be a better person. I love that you have a program to help people overcome pornography as well as spouses and loved ones. They said that they were talking to a friend the other day and the friend brought up the subject of pornography, how horrible it is, and that it is something that people do not overcome. And this person said, I did not agree and I felt that people overcome it often. So I want to ask you, what is your success rate and can people truly overcome this addiction? And I'm telling you, they can. And I got asked this question a couple of weeks ago as well of if I've ever seen somebody actually get over it. And absolutely I have. And this is, uh, again, one of these kind of soapbox topics. I feel like with addiction, and we go back to that, what I just talked about, that it's this void or somebody feels like they're not in control of their life or they feel like they're not satisfied in their relationship or their job or their health or any of those things, then when they feel uncomfortable, um, their brain is kind of at this place where because of probably early exposure to pornography, um, you know, early exposure to compulsive sexual behavior, that that's where their brain wants to go when it feels uncomfortable. Um, they uh, Typically, people that are struggling with this, this impulse control disorder, they don't want to feel uncomfortable. So the brain's going to immediately go to this thing that they can do that's going to bring it this, you know, this instant reward. Only at that point, then it's followed by a lot of the shame, the guilt, that sort of thing. And again, if you've heard me talk at all, uh, nothing productive about shame. Shame is toxic. And uh, guilt might say, okay, man, I really need to you know, do something about this. And then shame comes in and says, well, you're not going to because you're a horrible person. We don't want to do that. Shame kind of keeps the addiction alive. Shame is what then causes people to feel bad about themselves. They feel isolated and they feel like, okay, I got to just overcome this because I don't want to let people down, that sort of thing. But that's the shame talking. You know, this is a this is an addiction that can absolutely be overcome. But what you have to do is you have to seek help. If you've tried to do this on your own, there is so much help out there. So going back to the answer, yes, I have helped a lot of people overcome this or people have, you know, I think first people need to feel hope. And so what I find a lot of times is that people, even when they come into my office, first of all, they're looking for some magic pill or magic wand or that sort of thing. And unfortunately, there's that that doesn't exist. But what often happens is people don't do whatever the work is that they are, you know, quote, supposed to. And then they're going to come back to me. Hey, I didn't do any of the mindfulness work or I didn't do any of the work around my subpersonalities or I didn't do any of the, you know, the work kind of looking back at my past and what are my triggers and what leads to my thoughts and that sort of thing. Or I haven't created a relapse prevention. And people keep coming back into my office at times saying, hey, I didn't do this. And I feel like what they're saying, conscious or subconscious, is, hey, I didn't do all this work. So can you go ahead and tell me that I'm broken now so that I can go back and, and you know, um, give into my addiction? And that's the thing. Absolutely not. No, I'm not going to do it because I know that that's part of what this addiction does. It gets you caught up in this spiral of not feeling like you're enough. So how do people overcome it? Can people truly overcome it? Absolutely. One of the hardest things for me to do is when I get somebody new in my office and they'll even say the things like, I know know that I'll always struggle with this, but I just want to be able to get some traction, gain some ground. And there's that part of me that says, okay, I can't wait till we get to the part where you realize now, wow, I, I don't have this um, burden that I'm carrying around with me, or this baggage or this thing that causes me to not feel like I'm enough or that I'm not worthy or I'm not uh, of worth or any of those type of things. Because um, that's that's what keeps people in the cycle of pornography addiction or compulsive sexual behavior. So absolutely, but you need to have hope and you need to go 
find a program, a person, or someone that can help you through that. If you're trying to just white knuckle it, get out of it on your own, um, in the words of, I think, Dr. Phil, how's that working, right? Even if you, if you, even if you give it up for a little while and then you turn back to it, imagine where it is not there at all. And, uh, and you can do that. You can become very aware of your thoughts, your triggers, and you can then, uh, have these uh, great mindfulness practices or behavioral things that put a lot of distance between the thought and the action. Um, so yes, you can overcome it. Absolutely. Okay, let me uh, go to the, this one's, this one's gonna be fun. This one is, I get this one so much and this person put it perfectly, I feel like. They said, you very frequently come out and say my ADD brain. They say, I'm not sure if you actually have ADD or if it's something you say. And then they go on to talk about that they have a child who has ADHD and, uh, and they said, um, I'm wondering if this is something that you ever have considered doing a podcast on. And the answer is absolutely not just one podcast, but multiple podcasts. And I've reached out to some experts in the field of ADHD and I've had some great feedback and it's really become a matter of scheduling. That's really all that it's been because yes, I cannot wait to do, I want to do a series of podcasts on uh, ADHD. So let me just address a couple things. Do I have, uh, when I say my ADD brain, am I being insensitive? And, um, you know, to those who actually have ADHD, I absolutely have ADHD. And this is something that I will tell you, even when I, even when I realized, even when I recognized it, when I got the diagnosis, when I went in and got tested for it, um, it was something that I felt embarrassed. I felt some shame around that, that I, I had to keep this to myself. But man, the, uh, after having dealt with it, after having the diagnosis, and I did this like two or three years ago. So um, what am I, 24? That's a very big joke. I'm almost 49. So this was like, I don't know, 46, 47 years old. I deal with it. And, and let me kind of go back in the Wayback Machine. I've spent over a decade because, I don't know if it's because the male therapist or whatever it is, but I've got to work with some just incredible people. I mentioned this on some of the podcasts, people that own big companies, people that have been in politics, athletes, um, you name it, people that have been extremely successful but that come to me with ADHD. And, and you, you can mask ADHD with, I've got a lot of irons in the fire. You know, I'm, I'm just go, go, go. I'm constantly going. But then they come into my office and it's like, okay, I can't finish anything. I can't stay focused. But a lot of people just feel like, man, that's what this person, they're just, they're just always on the go, but not knowing what that's like. Untreated ADHD often mimics depression. And that's, uh, and that's part of like, I think part of where I went. Now, my path back program, and this is a true story, it was the filming was done and I had sat on it for a year year or more and hadn't hadn't buttoned that thing up and I'm sitting here talking with these uh, these clients these just powerful people who are struggling with ADHD that they cannot keep you know um, things together they can't they're, they're constantly in the world of daydreams they uh, inattention disorganization um, problems staying on task uh, you know kind of zoning out when somebody's talking to them um, impulsivity hyperactivity uh, fidgeting squirming spur of the moment decisions without thinking I mean all of those things right and I'm dealing with that and I'm and I'm diagnosing people with ADHD and I'm getting them help and I'm sitting in on 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 coaching sessions with you know world-renowned ADHD coaches and I'm sitting there going oh my gosh this is me you know this this is what I'm going through at the time I'm sitting on uh, wanting to do the virtual couch podcast um, I hadn't completed my path back recovery program uh, I got my hand in about two or three other companies and uh, trying to finish a manuscript all these things and I'm just like I can't finish any of them and uh, and it was just killing me so then I finally went in and decided okay let's uh, let's do a little bit of uh, take a test and and see if there is a diagnosis there and I remember in the intake this uh, therapist was going over some questions with me and twice during the questioning I was like I, I said 
what was the question? You know, can you repeat that? And uh, she just laughed. And she's like, you know, that's a, does that happen very often? And I was like, yeah, a little bit, you know, and it was because I had started rambling kind of like I'm doing right now. And, uh, and so that was part of the, one of the, you know, the symptoms or the signs of uh, ADHD. So, and, and I'll tell you this real quick too. Well, and okay. And I have to tell you as well, there is something that my family has done often that is, uh, has always been kind of fun. And it is a, take me on your train of thought, dad, tell me what you're thinking. We were at uh, California adventure not too long ago and we're sitting waiting for this line, grizzly rapids. There's people everywhere. And I just, am just looking, I love people. I love the conversations. I, and so I'm just, I'm everywhere. And you know, one of my kids says, all right, dad, take us on your train of thought. I'm like, I don't know, man, I don't want to do this. Right. And they're saying, no, come on. And, I, and I, I'm joking. I'm not a toy. But then uh, at that point, then it's like, okay, here we go. And then it's like, you know, that person, this, and they said this. And when I see this, I think of this movie. And when, when this happens and, you know, and then I start thinking about getting wet and what if I'm wet? And then I think of this and, and then they just kind of chuckle or laugh or that sort of thing. And I remember at times when I would be driving with my wife and I would, you know, it's the classic, I would say to her, Hey, what are you thinking? And she'd say, eh, not much, you know, just about uh, driving or on the road. And then she would say, what are you thinking? And then, man, here it comes. Well, I was just thinking about when we get home and I have to do this. And when I do this, then I was thinking about this. And this makes me think of this. And man, sometimes she would just say, that must be exhausting. And I remember when we were, when I, when I, the kids were little, I got that book. Um, if you give a mouse a, a cookie, is that the one? Or you give a moose a muffin or a pig a pancake. If you're not familiar with those books, I have to guess there was someone with some ADHD tendencies that had some hand in that because it was a, and I wish I, I should have brought it. I should have looked one up, but it's basically this, you know, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want some milk. And if he wants milk, he's going to want to go to the kitchen. If he goes into the kitchen, he's going to want this. And if he does this, he's going to go upstairs and he's going to comb his hair and then he's going to organize a room. And, and I just thought, isn't that great? Like, you know, that's me. I'm that, I'm that mouse. And then there were people in my, my family who were saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And I would think about these times where I'm going to go out in the backyard and I'm going to, you know, man, I need to clean the dog poop in the backyard. And I get out in the backyard and all of a sudden I notice that, you know, I don't know, some things need to be cleaned up or the, uh, the side yard's a mess. And now I better go in the garage and oh my gosh, I'm in the garage and I need to collapse this cardboard and, um, all these sort of things and never having gotten to cleaning up the dog poop. So at that point, you know, half an hour later, I've done a whole bunch of other things, but never the thing that I set out to do. And so those are kind of some of those ADHD thoughts. I do want to uh, mention though, um, a lot of people say, it, you know, is it ADD or ADHD? And uh, it was back in the, I want to say, um, right now, everything falls under ADHD, which is uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, ADD, which, which is attention deficit disorder, I think lost its distinction back in, yeah, 1994. That's when doctors decided all forms of attention deficit disorder would be called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, even if the person wasn't hyperactive. But then you kind of go down the list a little bit here and there they call it ADHD predominantly inattentive presentation, which is the fancy way to say ADD. So none of the hyperactivity or there's ADHD predominantly hyper, hyperactive impulse presentation, which is the hyperactive part. And then there's the ADHD. HD combined presentation, which is, uh, which is, I think all of the above. So yes, the answer to that question is I do, I do have it. I'm a card carrying member and uh, I am going to do a series of podcasts on it and I cannot wait. Oh, and I mean, I think part of the thing that's kind of exciting to realize, you know, I think the joke oftentimes for ADHD folk is they're talking and then it's, you know, squirrel and they, they lose attention. But 
you know, once I learned really what was going on, it was just fascinating. So the way it was explained to me is that uh, the ADHD brain has a dopamine deficiency. So my brain is constantly, in essence, kind of looking for these little, hey, what will get me a dopamine uh, bump? What will get me a dopamine bump? So I'm looking here, I'm looking here, I'm looking here, you know, maybe going out back and doing this, or maybe doing this, or maybe doing this. And so your brain's just constantly in this searching mode, searching mode. So a lot of the ADHD medications, um, the Adderall, the Ritalin, those sort of things, they, they hit that dopamine um, center and then they just kind of give you a nice flow of dopamine. So then when you do look at, you know, when you start to focus on a task, like completing the path back program, uh, then all of a sudden you go in um, and then it, you just feel, you feel like, okay, I can do this. I can stay on task. The interesting part is after however many years of just pretending that this didn't happen, that, uh, you know, I can still then um, start doing a project, writing, that sort of thing, and find myself, you know, writing, and all of a sudden a thought goes into my head about um, an MBA score, and then I'm going to go check on it really quick, and then I read some write-up, and then I need to look up the highlight. And if I'm on YouTube, and I'm looking at that highlight, then here comes another highlight. and then. But then what I love now is with the mindfulness component, then when I recognize that I am now off-task, then I just gently bring my mind back to present, back to the task at hand, and it's a little bit easier. So there's still the behavioral piece where my brain says, wait, 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 we don't stay focused. Remember, we like to jump around, but uh, but with the, um, you know, whatever the ADD medication is, ADHD medication, it's a lot easier to kind of stay locked in and focused, but I still feel like the mindfulness component is pretty important because ADHD or no ADHD, um, how often do we find ourselves just going down little rabbit holes on the internet or that sort of thing? Okay. Hey, we covered, look at what we covered tonight. One man EFT. We covered uh, um, pornography addiction, compulsive sexual behavior, and we covered a little ADHD. So um, I just want to thank you again for, um, oh, I did have one more. Look at this. Look at that ADD moment. Was that a squirrel moment right there? Uh, a lot of feedback on acceptance and commitment therapy, so much. And um, and I just want you to know how much I feel like uh, it, it can benefit. And, and the way, again, remember the way acceptance and commitment therapy works is that you're going to have thoughts. We all have them. We're all human. And we all have these private experiences, these personal experiences that kind of bring us to the point that we're at in life. And so, um, but then just having those thoughts, uh, it's perfectly normal. It's perfectly human. I'll give you the example that I like to do often where, you know, if I'm, if I find myself, if I, if I do react negatively to my spouse, let's say that one. And, uh, you know, and then if all of a sudden I'm like, man, you know, what am I doing? I, that's not the way to, to connect or communicate with my spouse. I'm this horrible person or whatever. What acceptance and commitment therapy does is first of all, it kind of brings us some awareness and we kind of say, okay man, okay, I got to catch myself because I'm starting to get down on myself. And and I'm down on myself because I'm human and I want to connect more with my partner. If I didn't care, if I wasn't down on myself, if I wasn't kind of having this reaction, um, then, I mean, what would I not care? Would that not really be me? But then we recognize what's the story that our brain's telling us. And in that moment, the story might be telling me that, you know, it's the, um, you know, I'm unlovable story, or it's the, I'll never get any better at communicating story, or the, if I keep this up, they're going to leave me story. And all of those are just stories. That's what we call them. Your brain is just constantly um, coming up with stories. It's just trying to just, and then we say, we're trying to hook you on these stories. And if your brain can hook you on one of these stories, then you fuse to it. And now once you fuse to that story, you begin to feel like it is the truth. And at that point, then you're not working towards your goal. Um, so if my goal is,
close connection with my partner, that story that I'm a horrible spouse and that I'll never get this better and I might as well give up, those are not workable thoughts, not productive thoughts toward my goal. So those are just stories my brain's telling me. My brain's trying to hook me to that story. It's trying to get me to fuse to that story because then at that point, I'm going to feel stuck. I'm going to feel defeated and I'm going to withdraw. So that is not going to get me anywhere closer to my goal. And, and I also love this concept of the brain is going to just pump out reasons. It's kind of another word for excuses. But so this is that one where if you say, okay, I want to run a marathon. And all of a sudden you get the little bump of dopamine right there, or adrenaline. And you feel like, oh my gosh, that would that be great. You know, I, I, I really want to do this. And then just stop right there and watch what your brain does. It's, an, it's a reason-giving machine. But then the brain's going to say, well, I don't know if I have time to train. And, you know, I've, I've heard it might uh, make me, you know, hurt my knees. And um, I don't even know where one is. And I don't know if we have the money to afford it. So your brain just goes into all these reason-giving uh, instances where it's saying, here's the reasons why you can't do what you just said that you want to do. But if your goal is running a marathon, then it doesn't matter if those are true stories, false stories, you know, that's sort of thing. Do those stories get you closer to your goal of running a marathon or not? If they don't, then they're not workable. So you don't want to hook to them. You don't want to fuse to them. And you want, so when you recognize that, you kind of come back to the present and you start working again back toward your goal. Because our brain is telling us stories all day long. And, and honestly, most of them aren't very workable. I'm not going to say they're, you know, they're horrible or bad or that sort of thing, but just there's so many stories going through our brain all the time. So many thoughts going through our brain and just which ones are workable and which ones aren't workable. So that's what I love about acceptance and commitment therapy. And so, you know, I had a client uh, last week that was talking about that they were going to go away to college. And so um, their first thought was, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if that, you know, uh, what if my, what if my anxiety gets too bad? What if my depression kicks in? Um, What if nobody likes me? What if, you know, and it's, and it's like, okay, what's our goal? Our goal is to, to get to college. So then all of those are just their, their stories going through the brain might be true, might be false. Anxiety might get a little bit worse. Depression might, who knows, right? But what's the story my brain's telling me? My stories, the, the, the brain's telling me the story of, um, oh, it's the, I won't get help there story, or, or it's the, um, maybe my medication won't keep working story, or I'll never find another therapist when I'm there story, or, and so those are not workable thoughts. You know, those aren't workable thoughts toward the goal of going away to college. Um, because then we can work with all of those thoughts if we don't fuse that to them. And if we don't, you know, look at those as truths and then they cause us to get stuck. Cause it, you know, and I think I've just said this like a thousand times now, but the brain just is going to keep on going with these reasons that it's going to try. Because if we remember, and this is the stuff that I love, I get to do some work with this really cool place that does a lot of brain scans. And uh, the, the, the prevailing thought there is our brain is a little bit of a, it wants to kind of take it easy. So, you know, the brain knows what right here, right now looks like. So that's why when you say, I want to run a marathon, it gives a little shot of adrenaline. But then when it kind of settles back down, it says, I don't know, you know, I don't know what that's going to look like for this guy. Um, so, so I want to kind of stay right here. So the brain's going to come up with all these reasons to kind of keep you right where you are because it knows what this is like. Even if it's something that we don't really enjoy or we don't feel like we're in a, in, in the best place we can be, um, with our emotional health or wherever we are as spiritual, um, where we live, our jobs, the brain knows what this looks like. And it is a little bit afraid of the great unknown. So the acceptance and commitment therapy piece to that will get us moving down that path toward this great unknown. All right. Hey, I want to thank you for taking the time today. And uh, next week, I'll be back with a interview. I've got uh, just a fantastic interview with um, Dr. Rebecca Williams and Julie Kraft. She's an LMFT. And the book is called The Gift of Recovery, 52 Mindful Ways to Live Joyfully Beyond Addiction. And I'm going to tell you, it, it is not just about 
um, drug or alcohol addiction or drug addiction or that sort of thing. It is an amazing book that uh, the 52 Mindful Ways just talk about ways to connect with yourself, connect with people, and uh, to just kind of live more present and be more emotionally healthy. So that interview is coming up next week, and I've just got a whole lot more that I've been recording. So I can't wait to get those out to you. So uh, this will be the uh, wonderful, the talented Aurora Florence taking us away with It's Wonderful. And I will see you next week on The Virtual Couch. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the day